Blog. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. I'm Melissa Studdard, and this is Teferit Talk, the blog talk radio show for Teferit, a journal of spiritual literature, where our goal is to promote peace in the individual and in the world through writing. We're so happy that you've joined us tonight, and we invite you to also join our online community at www.teferitjournal.com, where you can interact with other members, read their writings, post your own writings, and subscribe to the journal. We'd like to let you know as well that our Blog Talk chat room is currently open if you would like to chat with other listeners or suggest questions. Our interview tonight is with Richard Jeffrey Newman. Newman is the author of the poetry collection, The Silence of Men, the translator of two masterpieces of 13th century Iranian poetry by Sadi, and translator of The Teller of Tales, a portion of the Persian national epic. He is also co-translator with Professor John Moyne of A Bird in the Garden of Angels, a selection of work by Rumi. As well, Newman serves as Persian Arts Festival's literary arts director, co-curates the monthly night of Persian poetry at the Bowery Poetry Club, sits on the advisory boards of the Translation Project and Jackson Heights Poetry Festival, is a speaker with the New York Council for the Humanities, and is an associate professor of English at Nassau Community College. In the introduction to The Silence of Men, Yusuf Kamanyaka states, Oftentimes we are silent about what we witness, but Richard Newman's narrator suggests that there is inherent strength in the telling and sharing, in dialogue. His poetry dares us as men, as human beings, to share what we have experienced and imagined, the good and the bad. He seems to be saying that dialogue is what makes each of us whole, not in a gush, but through a measured language that embraces art. Richard, how are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm I'm excited to be doing this. This is wonderful. Thank you. Oh, yes, it's great to be talking with you. Thank you. Um, I wanted to jump in and start by talking about the title of your collection, The Silence of Men, and um, Mm -hmm. just talk about what that means to you as a poet, a human being, a member of contemporary culture. Um, That would be great. Well, The the Silence of Men is, is also the title of the title poem of the book. And, I mean, the image... The image is kind of a, I guess, absurd, grotesque poem in a way. Um, the image, the, the poem is about is a dream poem in which a man walks into a room carrying a, a disembodied erect penis. And by the end of the poem, the penis um, has gone soft and there's kind of a pool of blood um, around it. And the, the last line of the poem is spoken by the speaker and it is the silence between us is the silence of men. And for me, that it means so many different things, actually, on a lot of different levels. But the first one that occurred to me now when you ask is the, the ways in which um, our culture, traditionally, historically, stereotypically, really does, I think, in ways alienate men from our bodies. Because men are, are stereotypically, again, obviously there are exceptions, but men are supposed to be strong, invincible, indestructible, um, you know, we're supposed to be able to withstand pain. We are expected, we, you know, men still are the ones who are, um, if there were a draft, men would be the ones drafted into war to kind of lay their bodies down on the line. Um, some significant portion of them is cannon fodder. 
and and that really does require a kind of alienation from your body. Um, more personally, the silence of men has to do with the ways in which I've had silences imposed on me um, in my life, a lot of them having to do with sex and violence and, and to some degree religion as well. Um, I was sexually abused when I was a boy. Um, once when I was about 12 or 13 years old, and then again when I was about, I guess it started when I was about 15 or 16 and continued until I was 17. And one of the things about coming to terms with that for me was breaking silence. And and on the one hand, on a personal level, breaking the silence is very, I guess, a very obvious thing. I was, when I was 12 years old, it was 1974. So at, at that time, I guess people were just beginning, and I mean really just beginning, to talk openly about the sexual abuse of girls. Um, and sexual abuse was still one of those taboo things that nobody talked about. It was kind of swept under the rug. Um, and even when I was 15, it was not that many years later. And, and people, no one was talking about the sexual abuse of boys at all, at least in, in my experience until at least the late 1980s, 1990s or so. Um, and so being able to find a, you know, to kind of claim a voice in which I could speak about that, and then, and then again in which I could speak about it as something that wasn't really personal. Um, I mean, there's, there's personal personal healing, of course, involved in sexual abuse, but I think it's also, um, I think it's a very political thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I like what Yusuf Kamanyaka said in the intro about the importance of dialogue, and especially artistic dialogue. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you think can be gained by this kind of sharing? Well, I think, I think on the one hand, um, and I actually know this to be true because over the years I've had people um, get in touch with me having read poems from the book. Mm-hmm. One thing is, you know, for me to speak out and say things that, that most of them I think don't talk about. I mean, whether whether they have been, you know, survived sexual abuse or not, um, at least in, in men of my generation, don't really talk about. And I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's any different for younger men, though I know now people we speak more comfortably culturally about these issues. But, for, you know, for someone to speak about it, um, it can provide a vocabulary for others to talk about it. You know, I learned the vocabulary to talk about sexual abuse from feminism, frankly. Um, you know, from the feminist, from feminist discussions of what it means, you know, what it means for women to be sexually objectified and sexually abused. And then once you have a language with which to name something, then real dialogue becomes possible because once you name it and, and you kind of bring it into knowledge, um, you can figure out what it means. And to figure out meaning, I think, always requires some sort of dialogue, whether it's, you know, an artist's self-dialogue or dialogue with a, a writer, in this case, you know, dialogue with a, an imagined reader, or it's someone, you know, asking a question that you can answer honestly and, and if they are willing to if they're open to hearing an honest answer, well, that's going to change them. And that, and speaking the honest answer, I think changes the speaker as well. Wow, that's so I'm sorry, go ahead, I'm, please. 
I, I was just gonna I was just gonna say you know I, and I think I think writing poetry in particular is one way of making that kind of dialogue happen. Just because poetry, I mean, not that such a thing can't happen with a memoir or a piece of fiction or, or some, you know, kind of belletristic creative nonfiction writing, but the you know, poetry is so much about the heightening of language and, re, you know, really focusing on, for me anyway, the act of naming things rather than simply telling a story. It's really about the act of naming something. And I think, so I think poetry helps to make that happen. Thank you. That's a really great answer. I, I like what you said about feminism, too. I just, you know, it's not something that I would have guessed, so <laughs> having you tell that is really great. I, I will tell, I'll tell you, I'll tell you quickly. It was actually, I mean, and it's kind of um, sad, sad in a way. Well, sad isn't the right word. Um, but the, 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 you know, Adrienne Rich um, just died, and it was really her essay where I first started to learn a vocabulary for naming what had happened to me. Um, it was the, uh, the book on lies, secrets, and silence. And there's an essay there called Caryatid, Two Columns. And in that essay, um, I, I don't right off the top of my head have the quote, but I was reading through the essays kind of marveling at, you know, at what I, how old was I, 19? So this is the early 80s, I guess. Um, kind of marveling at just how relevant feminism seemed to me politically, having read her essays, when before I had sort of thought, well, gosh, you know, isn't, isn't it sort of obvious? Of course women should have equal pay, or of course women should have reproductive rights. It really, when I was younger, didn't register why there needed to be a whole political movement mm -hmm. um, for it. But I was reading this essay, and... Um, I read whatever whatever lines it was that I read. It was about rape or something like that. And there really was this little voice. I heard a little voice in my head that kind of said, you know, well, what about what happened to me? Um, and that was that was the beginning of my coming to language and coming to, to you know, to a voice that I could speak about these things. In. That's amazing. Um, but... How did you get the courage to actually talk about it? Was it did she inspire you not only through language but through courage also, or did that come from somewhere else? You know, that's a that's a very good question, and I'm not sure I'm not sure I know the answer. Um, what I know is that from very early on, once I had once I had words for it, I was driven to say it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I and I don't I, I I guess as I'm as I'm talking about it I've never really I don't think I've thought it quite this way before I don't know that it was Adrian Rich, that I was conscious of it being Adrian Rich's work per se as much as I was conscious of well you know I have this there's this really compelling political politics called feminism that says things about women's lives about women's experience about you know male privilege and patriarchy and all of that. Um, and it was really compelling to me, and it was even more compelling to me that my life, at least at first, seemed to fit so much of that, you know, fit into, in the victim, in, in, the, in the victim slot, right? Um, and I thought, well, this is, you know, this is important. I, I should be part of this politics. And I, I think in some ways that's where I started to get the 
the nerve, the idea that I ought to be saying these things. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, one of the things I noticed is that in addition to claiming your own voice through poetry, you also give voice to a lot of others who can't speak for themselves. Um, you know what I'm talking about with the dramatic yeah. poems. Um, can you talk right. about why you thought it was important to use the collection to speak for them as well? Um you know, the the, the 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 poems, the ones that are spoken by Holocaust, well, they're not all spoken by Holocaust survivors, but most of the dramatic monologues are spoken by Holocaust survivors. I, those, those poems started, um, I was reading one of the, one of the recovered journals, um, and I'm now blanking on the title of the Cosmo, the Cosmo Ghetto Diary. And, one night I had a dream. Um, I had a dream in which, I mean, it, it sounds kind of, you know, spooky, spooky. I had a dream in which these kind of faces were floating in front of me and started speaking lines um, that became a, that became a, a sonnet. I wrote, I wrote it as a sonnet sequence um, that became a sonnet that no longer existed. It was not a successful poem, but I started to create these sonnets based on stories in a diary. Um, wow. And then, and then eventually, um, eventually I um, how can I say this? Well, eventually I started to change details. I started to, to, to fictionalize a little bit more um, for the, in order to make the poems work uh, as poems, as sonnets, as sonnets, in order to find the rhyme or what have you. Uh, and there's actually been, I mean, people there, there are people who are a little bit uncomfortable with this because um, there are people, uh, a guy named Charles Fishman, who edits Holocaust poetry anthologies, and he, he refused to use these poems in any of his, in his anthology because he said, you know, there, you know, there are still survivors who, who really have to speak, right, who have stories to tell, and it, doesn't, it does a disservice to create stories. Even if the stories are, are kind of based on... on real details, but to create these characters of survivors who never really existed. Um, but for me, for me it was important because when I was growing up and I went to, uh, I went to Hebrew school, I went to Talmud Torah when I was a kid, and then I, I, I went to uh, a yeshiva high school for four years. Um, when I was growing up, the Holocaust and what it meant, what that event meant was kind of the defining thing of Jewish identity that I was taught, that and and the state of Israel. And I really, over time, kind of came to resent that because I just, I just, just kind of made me angry that, you know, well, you know, surely being Jewish is about more than just, well, you know, and I I don't mean this to trivialize the Holocaust at all, but, you know, surely being Jewish is about more than the fact that six million people died in the 1940s, and, and I would have died also probably if I had been there. Um, and therefore, and I'm kind of now summarizing a lot of what I was taught, you know, therefore I need to be in some, on some level afraid of the world. And, 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 you know, so much about what I was taught about the state of Israel back then was a reaction to the Holocaust, because if we didn't have Israel, for sure there would be another Holocaust somewhere. Um, and so creating these voices and, and, you know, being able to create 
to connect what I knew about the Holocaust, about survivors, about the people who died, about the things that happened in the ghetto and the concentration camps, being able to kind of shape them in my own voice um, was for me a very important thing. It was, you know, it was for me a way of kind of claiming claiming this history in a way that I could give meaning to rather than have the history define me. Wow, that's great. <laughs> um, would you read a poem for us? Sure, which Maybe one? Op-ed? Op-ed. Op-ed. Op-ed would be great. Yeah. Sure. And this is, I mean, this is one of the other dramatic monologues, and I'll tell you quickly how it came to be. My, my father is a good deal more conservative than I am, and he is a staunch advocate of the death penalty, and I am not. I, I don't support the death penalty. And one day we were having um, quite a long argument about it, and finally he said to me, you know, what would you do if someone killed your son, if someone killed your wife and your son? And, you know, it's kind of the cliche question that people ask, right? I mean, that's what derailed Michael Dukakis' campaign or one of the things when he was president. Is that right? It was Dukakis, I think. Um, but, um, you know, I decided, I decided to take him seriously because it, it, is a fair, it is a fair question, you know. And that's how this poem op-ed came to be, and it's in the form of a... Um, an op-ed piece that might have been sub- submitted to a, to a newspaper. Great, thank you. So this, is, this is op-ed. The man who murdered my wife and son has been convicted. If you're reading this, chances are you know the prosecutor's argument for murdering him too, and I will confess. When they told me all he'd done, it was not in that moment obvious that justice could be anything other than torture slow enough that the seconds stretched like days across his pain and he was begging for relief. Because all I could hear in the voices of the officers who came to tell me was my wife pleading with him to let our son out of the car. And because the image of her face going slack as she realized it was no use punched me to the ground, and because her voice from the last time we argued about it came back to me, and I saw her again humming each word with her fist, insist, hammering, sorry, each word with her fist, insisting she'd be happy to look a man like him in the eye and say, as she inched the final blade all the way in, taking with his suffering her own measure of the lives he took, that granting him his death was a waste of mercy. Because I knew I could never do such a thing. I was sorry she wasn't there. The child's punishment phase begins tomorrow, each side arguing for the killer's life, his father and my father among them, as if his beating heart and breathing lungs were prizes stacked above those open-mouthed clowns with balloons you tried to burst on top of their heads, at which... Just months ago, on the Coney Island boardwalk, my boy and I took aim, my fingers steadying his on the water gun's trigger, trying to win the big blue teddy bear in the carny's hand. And it would be so easy to stand before the judge, as some have urged me to do, and let my wife speak through me. The jury should know, one friend wrote, what she would have wanted. 
But even a murderer, even this murderer who waited two hours to end my family's misery with bullets I've dreamed myself in front of every night since the bodies were found, even he has the right not to die just because someone else has decided he must. Make no mistake, this is not, as many Christians have told me, it ought to be about forgiveness. I do not forgive him. But no matter how much I might want him to die over and over and over again, I can't at the same time not know that in the moments after his birth, someone held him the way I held my son. And I can't not know that his eyes, like my son's, looked out at whoever it was with nothing in them but sight and patience. And I have never been more scared or more naked. The infant in my arms did not yet love me and maybe never would. And in that doubt, I understood everything I had to offer him was nothing if it didn't stand as proof that long before the gaze I was giving back to him, long before my smile and the words of welcome I sang while his mother rested, long before I felt his first kick through the skin of her belly, before she walked into my class and I thought the rest of my days would not be long enough to plumb the depths of the stare she fixed me with, long before her father and mine gathered our newborn bodies into that same embrace with that same fear and that same hope. Long before any of that, my love for him was a collective human love he would never have to work to deserve. Wow, thank you. That was so powerful. (laughs) We have people commenting in the chat room about how powerful it was, too. Oh, well, Um, thank you so much. Yeah, amazing. Um, Well, you know, you make the point in the poem that it's not about forgiveness, but about something else. And we were just talking about naming, so I wanted to see how you would name that something else if if you had to. (laughs) How would I name that something else if I have to? Well, I think it says it's at the end of the poem where it says, you know, there, there is a collective human love mm-hmm. that, that no one should have to work to deserve. You know, there's a kind of, I, I believe there is, there ought to be, um, a, a fundamental acknowledgement that, that you have a right to exist. You know, I should acknowledge for everyone else who is not me, right? You know, you have a right to your existence. You have a claim to a, to a physical presence in this world that is that's just 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 because you are it's you know it's nothing you don't have to be specially talented you don't have to be what specially beautiful or handsome or it, just because you are you have a claim to that mhm mhm and and, that's really and go ahead. I'm sorry go ahead oh i was just going to say um it's just so interesting that in the poem there's a point made about how it's something other than forgiveness that really fascinates me <laughs> you know well I mean, one of the things I, that was something that was kind of hard I remember writing the poem that was kind of hard to come to because mm-hmm. and, and one, one, there's a, there's a um, forgiveness I think is something that you have to earn Right. So if you if you hurt me in some way, 
um, and you want forgiveness, that's something, you have to do something to earn that forgiveness. It's not, I, I, I don't believe um, that I have an obligation to forgive you personally. Right. Right. Um, right. And that's a great distinction. But that doesn't mean that I have a right to take whatever whatever anger or grudge I might have and hold your life hostage to it. Um, you know, and I think and to me that's that's kind of kind of the distinction. Mhm. Mm mm -hmm. There was a, 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 a mag I think it's only an online magazine now, but it's called On the Issues. And there was a, um, this was a long time ago, but there was an article in there about about a woman. Uh, I, there was a story in the article about a woman who had been sexually assaulted, and about how I guess her priest or she was Christian of some sort. I don't remember what Catholic, Protestant, or whatever. Um, but there was about how she she was told she was actually pressured. Um, someone was trying to pressure her into forgiving the man who raped her. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, that this, was, that this would somehow be cleansing for her. And the man had done absolutely nothing mm. to, earn, to earn that forgiveness. And I think there's a difference between if you have been wounded or hurt or abused or oppressed, there's a difference between, you know, kind of letting go of the anger and letting go of the ways in which your anger at whoever it is that has hurt you kind of keeps you under their thumb in a way, right? It's still, mm -hmm. I mean, if you're angry at them, then you still want something from them. There's a difference between letting go of that anger and just saying, you know what, I, I am living my life and I'm going to heal and I'm, whatever it is that I'm going to do and claim of my life and you, the rapist, the abuser, the whoever, are more or less irrelevant to that. You know, you need to go do what you have to do. And, you know, if you, I mean, I have often thought, what would I do if one, one of the men who abused me was actually a kind of marginal friend of the family? And I, I have often thought about what I would do if I saw him again. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I really don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't even know that I want to conjecture. But one of the things I thought of was, well, you know, what if he said, you know, I'm really sorry. What if he, you know, acknowledged what he had done and said, I'm really sorry? Well, in that case, I don't know that just simply saying I'm sorry is enough. But, you know, that kind, that kind of a move is something towards earning a personal forgiveness as opposed to, right. you know, just because you, I mean, just because somebody rapes someone else, the rapist is still, I mean, it's a hard thing to say, a human being. Right, right. No, I, I hear you. Um, I'm kind of interested to know as well, you said that this poem grew out of a debate that you were having with your father, so you probably showed him the poem. How did he respond to it? No, I, well, you know, my, my father, actually I don't know if my father has ever read the poem. Um, <laughs> we're, we're not, he's, not, he's not much of a reader, not much of a literary guy. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, I mean, it's it's not... It's not a part of my life that, that I share with him or that he's really interested in, oddly, okay. oddly enough. I mean, he's very proud no, of the no, fact that, that you know, he's proud no, of the I, fact I, that I, I've published yeah. books. Right. But that's about it. Right. Well, you know, a lot of people don't like to read poetry, so 
You right. know, no, a lot of true. poets have that uh, where a lot of people in their own family or friends just say, oh, wow, that's really great that you're a poet, but then they don't really read it. <laughs> right, so, yeah. My my father's response was, you know, wow, that's really deep. Not, not, to, this <laughs> poem, not to this poem, but to others, uh, other pieces that I have written. Right. So I stopped, right. I stopped showing him. <laughs> well, you know, I was hoping that we would have time for you to read part of one of your translations, but we are kind of running out of time. I, I do want to ask you one quick question, though, about how mm-hmm. translation has impacted your own writing. Well, it's, it has forced me, because the, the, the poems that I'm translating are classical Persian literature, and they are all formal poems. Um, and, I, and so I have, and I have chosen to translate them into forms in English, though not just forms in English, not that necessarily match the original. And I think one thing it has forced me to do is just to really be attentive to craft. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. the, the, the poems that I, 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 I don't think the translations have really affected the, the core of my work in a substantial way. Right, right. Well, I did notice that they yeah. seem your work is very different from the work that you translate, and that's part right. of what's interesting about it. Um, okay, well, we've got just a few minutes left, so I'd like to know anything that you have coming up, any events, publications you'd like to announce, just anything you'd like to tell the listeners about. Well, if if you're in Manhattan, I will be reading on Saturday the 28th at the Hudson Park Library in, 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 oddly enough, the Rhyming Poets Reading Series, as we're talking about before. Um, it's at the Hudson Park Library at 66 Leroy Street. It's from 2 to 4 p.m. Um, and I will be, this Tuesday on the 24th, if you're in Queens, um, I'm not reading, but I'm hosting an event that is really kind of exciting. Um, it's, a, it's called Translating the Old World to the New, and it's um, readings by two Eastern European writers who write about Eastern, you know, their, their lives in Eastern Europe, and also uh, bands who will play kind of bluegrass klezmer music that I'm, I'm very excited to hear. And that is at the Mikkel Restaurant, which is at 10239 Queens Boulevard. The event starts at 6.30. And there will be this, there's a, a, a small, I think it's like $10 to get in. And um, there's a little bit of food as well. Okay, that, great. Thanks. pretty much all I've done. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, it's been wonderful talking with you tonight, and um, thank you so much for sharing your your wonderful reading of that poem. It was really fantastic. Um, Melissa, thank you so much. Okay. Well, you have a great night. You do the same. Thanks again. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.